Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. sick of your lies. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> well, hi there, and thanks so much for tuning in. And of course, thanks to our live audience here for coming to a new campus on this autumnal Canberra evening. Let me recognise that we are recording this on Ngunnawal and Ngambri lands and pay our deepest respects to these First Nations peoples and their elders past and present. I'm Mark Kenny from the School of Politics and International Relations and the Australian Studies Institute and I'm host of ANU's Democracy Sausage and this is a special joint episode with our sister podcast Policy Forum Pod. So it's uh, it's quite an occasion, actually. We've not done this before and we've certainly not done it live before, so we're really, really excited about it. And we do thank so many of you for coming out tonight on what is a you know, a pretty filthy night in terms of weather. Um, we haven't had th- this these kinds of uh, winter nights uh, this year so far. So as I um, as I raced to the campus tonight, I was thinking, oh, it might, might have some effect on, on the audience. But uh, Canberrans are a stoic lot and uh, we're here in, in large numbers and I'm really grateful for that. We all are. Um, as you know, both pods are turned out each week with the enormous support of the Crawford School of Public Policy and the College of Asia and the Pacific and the College of Arts and Social Sciences and everyone at ANU. It's, uh, it, we get a lot of support and a lot of resources. Uh, there's a fair bit of back office and logistics associated with these podcasts each week. It's a lot of demand and we really appreciate all of the support that we get. So let's get down to it. Uh, welcome to Professor Sharon Bessel, who you will all know. Sharon is Professor of Public Policy and Director of both the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre at ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Welcome, Sharon. I should I, I don't know if I should say welcome because it's your podcast as well. <laughs> you can say welcome, Mark. That's fine. And it's very exciting to be here, a joint live pod. That's that's huge and so good to see so many people here. We're normally in our little capsule alone, so it's very exciting to have people around us. Yes, there's something very exclusive about a podcast studio, isn't it? Uh, you, you, you're doing it as a recording, so you're not usually going out live and it's all sounds, all extraneous. The whole external world world doesn't exist for that moment. So, yes, it's a, it's quite a turnaround to do this. Also with us, of course, is the co-host of Policy Forum Pod, Dr. Anna Greta Hunter. She's the Human Futures Fellow at ANU College of Health and Medicine. She's a cardiologist, a physician, a senior clinical lecturer at ANU Medical School. And uh, there's a lot of doctors at ANU, of course, but there's only a couple that you could really rely on if you had a heart attack and... <laughs> Anna Greta is one of them. So let's hope that doesn't happen tonight, but it's a, I suppose it's a, it's a good bit of uh, health warning for all of us. Uh, uh, we've, got, we've got a doctor in the house good in the real sense. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how I feel at the end of the, of the show. It is great to be here live. Um, Shannon and I often get really uh, pleased to be in the podcast studio together uh, rather than recording from home where we have to make excuses for the chickens and the cats and the birds and the animals around the place and the people. Um, and so it is fantastic to be here with a live audience tonight. 
Yes, that's actually a really good point that uh, through a lot of COVID, we didn't even have the luxury of, of being in, in little studios. Yep. We were doing it, to, you know, using a, a program called Zencaster generally. And, uh, you know, hopefully for those of you who listened to the podcast, you were, you were thinking, you know, it sounded fine and you weren't really noticing, but uh, there would have been the odd dog barking and, uh, and a person bursting into the room mm. as happens in, in households. Uh, and uh, yes, it's been quite a journey we've all been on, and of course everyone's sitting here with masks tonight, and we really appreciate that as well. Also with us tonight, Maria Tuflager is not with us, unfortunately. She has to be elsewhere, um, but uh, we've got an excellent stand-in for Maria. We've got Professor Nicholas Biddle, uh, who's been on the podcast before. He's Associate Director of the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods and Director of the new Policy Experiments Lab. Nick is also the co-author of a paper just about to come out, actually, arising from the results of the latest but yet-to-be-released ANU poll, which asks 3,500 voters their attitudes to many things. And it's one of the largest uh, surveys, I think probably is, Nick, the largest survey that is done of voter attitudes during this election. Yeah, no, thanks for having me here. And, and it was really nice to see everyone uh, kind of in the live audience. And I think this is, I've been on both podcasts. Uh, and so it's nice to be the, the guinea pig for the, for the first joint, uh, <laughs> podcast. And, you know, the high wire act of, of doing it live, uh, is really exciting. And yeah, as Mark mentioned, uh, we kind of run, uh, a survey and have been doing so for the last, uh, couple of years. Uh, and really excited to kind of preview some of the findings here and, uh, kind of get people's reactions and thoughts on on kind of the the issues of the day. Yeah, can we just start there because polling obviously has a bit of a sullied name after what happened in <laughs> 2019. In fact, what happened in 2016 is mm. not a bad uh, point to make as well about uh, uh, Brexit and the election of one orange uh, <laughs> demagogue in in the US. Uh, both both uh, outcomes that didn't seem to comply with the understanding of where public opinion was. So polling's um I mean where do you see it? It's a it's it, it it it's it's a it's a science, it's an art, and it's also one of those things where I guess consistent with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle has the ability to affect mm. its it's uh, whatever it's trying to observe. Yeah, so and I guess polling works most of the time, except when you want it to, uh, <laughs> and and that's around tight elections. Uh, you know, there's the elections which uh, are, you know pretty consistently one party's been behind for quite some time. Uh, it's pretty easy to kind of predict what's going to happen. So I think the examples you gave, the 2019 election in Australia and the 2016 kind of votes were tight elections and there was uncertainty around it. Um, I think the other thing which we're as pollsters uh, are grappling with or as, as survey statisticians are grappling with is people just don't do surveys anymore. Uh, and it's actually really hard to to get a good sample of people uh, and what you get, what you end up with is the opinionated. Uh, and they're the ones who who say yes to, to doing the surveys and they're obviously not representative of the population. So we try really hard in, to, in our surveys to kind of get – a broad sway of the people to to get a sense of where the biases are, but at the same time, uh, while we do ask kind of uh, questions on uh, political attitudes, uh, we're we're not brave enough to predict predict the election. Uh, we'll kind of um, it you know it, it'd be a little bit more circumspect than I think uh, some of the other pollsters might be. Yes, perhaps leave that to the political commentators to get wrong, as I did last time. Um, <laughs> And so many else, so many of my uh, contemporaries. Well, it's good to be wrong in a crowd. Uh, it's worse <laughs> being wrong when you're by yourself. What, what's the what's the, the you know you mentioned um, uh, the the challenge of, of of getting a representative sample. The way pollsters tend to handle that, I mean, they go out of their way to to try and address changing uh, social habits. So the fact that we don't have landlines anymore, for example, is a, is a big change in the way that pollsters go about trying to reach a representative group of, of Australian voters. And then they do this thing called waiting, yep. don't they? Um, yeah. So if you kind of know kind of characteristics for the population, 
uh, and you have those characteristics on the survey, you can kind of adjust. Uh, and one of the things which uh, where the uh, US election leaders got it wrong is is they waited for the wrong things. Uh, so uh, you know, previously, kind of age, sex, location was kind of the main predictors of voting preference. And and in the US election uh, in 2016, it was education background, uh, which was really kind of uh, which split uh, the vote and. Because there was most of the polls didn't wait by education, they kind of uh, waited for the wrong thing. Uh, it sounds like the story of my life, really, waiting for the <laughs> wrong thing. thing. Um, and and the other thing is you can't wait for things you don't have on your survey, so uh, or you don't for which you don't have kind of benchmarks for. And you know things like enthusiasm. Well, what's the benchmark for enthusiasm or uh, kind of knowledge about uh, the, the candidates? There's nothing really uh, which you can benchmark against. So it's hard. Uh, uh, and uh, I think at least this time around, most of the polling com- uh, companies are uh, talking more about uncertainty, uh, kind of talking more about the uh, the undecided, uh, which I think was was kind of the the, the Australian um, experience was that uh, last time there was a lot of people going into election who are undecided and and to predict where they go is is quite difficult. Um, so there has been an improvement, I think, and and some genuine attempts to to really um, you know not. Uh, not make more of the the data than than it's able to, uh, and I think that's really helped. Hopefully, helped the discussion, and and like you said, uh, meant that the polling has driven the 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 policy maybe a little bit less than it did uh, in previous elections. So let's get to what uh, some of the findings that you do have in this, and I guess that can from that we can drive uh, some discussion about what what the policy implications are for it. Um, I understand that one of the key findings that you can talk about is that the uh, ANU poll shows that about two thirds or nearly two thirds of voters put cost of living as the number one issue. Yeah, so that's probably not a huge uh, surprise when you kind of see the what what um, kind of politicians are responding to. But uh, I guess for us, uh, we've been kind of tracking kind of COVID uh, and COVID outcomes, um, you know, well-being outcomes, mental health outcomes. Uh, and people's views on on the pandemic. Uh, so we put uh, a question with about 22 po- uh, kind of priority areas uh, and got the respondents to, to rank or, or at least to say which ones they thought were kind of top priority and which ones were lower priority. And we went into it thinking, okay, well, COVID is going to be top uh, and then we'll look at the rest. Uh, and that clearly was not the case. Uh, well, from our data, was not the case. Uh, what people saw as being important was cost of living, uh, aged care. Uh, so uh, more than 60% of people said that it's a top priority in Australia to to fix uh, the aged care system. And, you know, COVID was right down. Uh, it was lower than uh, in the US when people were asked a, a similar question. Uh, and you can kind of see how... Um, we're almost dealing with a, kind of a COVID hangover uh, where um, the policy responses to COVID have been pretty successful in Australia, um, low-ish uh, kind of infection rates, a little bit less now, uh, you know, pretty low mortality rates, uh, pretty good in terms of kind of vaccination rates. Uh, but that's been uh, kind of generated off the back of a, a lot of spending uh, by government and a lot of uh, kind of pent-up demand, uh, which is now kind of flowing through to inflation and and also uh, into, uh, as we saw kind of yesterday, kind of interest rate changes. So it's certainly in our data feels like a, a, a post-COVID response far earlier than perhaps we were thinking it might have been. Nick, can I ask when you... When you asked about cost of living, what did you actually ask around that? So what's sitting behind cost of living? Is is it including housing, housing, is it petrol prices? Yeah, so we've we've kind of attacked cost of living in a in a few ways. Uh, so we just had a simple question amongst the list of priorities, which is reducing the cost of living. So and we've kind of allowed people to interpret that in in whatever they want to. Um, but we've also asked a, a range of other questions. Uh, so one uh, is whether people thought that prices were going to go up more this year than they did last year, and what be surprised to know that a vast majority of people said yes. That 
the, the prices in Europe more this year than last year. And we know that inflation is, you know, people's inflation expectations are both backward looking, but also they, they lead to inflation. If everyone thinks prices are going to go up, then people put up prices. Um, so we also asked about whether you feel that you can get by on your current income. So for our survey, we, uh, we're actually really uh, kind of lucky that we we ran a massive survey in February 2020. So we thought, you know, let's uh, we were approached by the European Social Survey uh, to to run an Australian version, and our response was, well, Australia's in Eurovision; it might as well be in the European Social Survey. Uh, Good so logic. This, I really uh, like that. Yeah, it's well, it was an ex post rationalisation. Um, so anyway, so so we did this massive survey in February 2020, and and not you know. COVID was something might have might happen at some stage to Australia and who cares? Uh, you know, something's happening in China. Maybe we'll collect some data about it at, at some stage. So we went in the field uh, and that's given us a whole bunch of baseline data. Um, so we have data from both January and February 2020 of, of kind of pre-COVID data. And one of the really fascinating findings from our first COVID survey was that a much higher proportion of people thought that their income was enough to get by on. Uh, in the early stages of COVID, uh, compared to February 2020, just prior, uh, and I was like, well, "Was that right? Uh, do we ask this question right? Uh, you know, have we done something stupid? Because uh, that's possible." Um, <laughs> and no, the the data, both our data and other data, kind of held up. You know, and you, it kind of makes sense. You know, what did people have to spend money on? And now, in in April 2022, in our most recent survey. That measure of, of income not being sufficient for expenditure uh, is at its highest level since uh, kind of pre-COVID. Uh, so I think it, it says that we're kind of attacking that cost of living uh, in a range of ways and and trying to, to get a sense of uh, what aspects of cost of living are affecting people, uh, what the distribution is of, of people being affected, uh, who thinks prices are going up compared to who thinks prices aren't going up, uh, to really trying to get to the bottom of that really amorphous concept of, of cost of living, which means different things to different people and, and, and in some ways can mean whatever you want it to mean. And Greta, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, when we think about a thing like cost of living being at the top of the, of the list, that it becomes kind of like a fire blanket on aspirations in just about every other area, um, that, that political parties play to that because it's, it's a here and now problem, uh, you know, the hip pocket problem. We know people tend to vote in that way. And it really means that the aspirations of both the electorate and the represented the, the representatives become this kind of it becomes this sort of almost um, direct and 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 instrumental relationship about keeping prices down or delivering relief as we see at the moment, rather than lifting the gaze and thinking about the longer term and where we want the country to be, not just where we want the country to be, you know, at the next. Well, on the twenty first of May, for example, uh, or or two months or six months from now, but but also where we want it to be five years from now, twenty thirty or twenty fifty or twenty thirty, maybe the end of the one, century. Yeah. You know, yeah. particularly as we're thinking about issues around climate change. Yeah, and climate change is a great example because it, it's always up there. And I think in in your survey, it's, it's up the there at number four. three, yeah, right? Yeah. Number three. Um, but if it's not ahead of cost of living, then it's always going to be dominated by cost of living yeah. because all you have to do, and we've seen this happen in previous elections, is run the argument that your your electricity prices are about to go up and it doesn't matter that it's number three because it's not number one, it doesn't mm. turn someone's vote. So as we were talking about bringing together Democracy Sausage and Policy Forum for a live pod around the election, one of the drivers for this conversation was the difference between policy, thinking about policy problems, thinking about the big challenges, the sorts of conversations that Sharon and I have had over the course of the, of the beginning of this year, big issues like climate adaptation, problems with mammalian extinction, imagining what the future might be, how we can improve our politics and how we can improve our engagement, what people actually want from their politics. And so that's one side of it is we've got major problems. We've also got an extraordinary suite of policy solutions. And we seem to get stuck, don't we? 
I don't know if anybody in the audience would like to agree, but we do seem to get stuck in this translation of actually taking our policy solutions and seeing them play out, particularly when the issues are medium term or long term. They're going to, the solutions will be over a couple of years or over a, a, a generation or two into the future. Cost of living might actually be a substitute for this. When we're worrying about cost of living, we're quite often worrying about where we're, where we're at, our personal security, our housing, our accommodation, our employment, our access to care. And these are some of the issues that come up frequently when we're talking about policy problems. Access to healthcare. Can I afford to see a doctor? Am I going to be able to be cared for if I need to be in residential care, if I'm going to need hospitalisation? These are some of the anxieties that I suspect are being reflected when we're saying, hey, I'm worried about the cost of living, I'm worried about whether my country can care for me into the future. And so uh, the challenge of now is how our politics responds to that cry for help and whether we continue to focus then on the short term, you know, let's patch this up and give another $250 to this particular subset so they vote for us, or whether we can create a world and particularly a politics where that policy is translated. Yes. Now, I should say we have a microphone down the front here and we're not going to do the standard thing of, you know, having sort of questions at the end, although we're happy to do that. But but also, if you want to join this conversation or if you want to put a question to take the conversation in another direction, uh, if you want to uh, make your way down to that microphone and uh, once I've seen you and at a suitable point, I'll invite you to to uh, make make your observation or question, ideally with a question mark at the end, as Colin Steele always says. <laughs> Mark, while people are thinking about coming down and, and joining the conversation, and, and please do, mm. I just want to pick up on, on this issue of the cost of living as well. Um, and I think I, I agree with, with what Anna Greta is saying, that it, it, it is almost code for a whole mm. range of anxieties that people are feeling at the moment. And we've already seen in the election campaign how it's almost become a slogan. You know, we will address the cost of living. We will reduce the cost of living. We will we will fix this for you without kind of unpacking what it is that sits behind that slogan of the cost of living. And one of the things that strikes me that I think we really need to be very conscious of is that while increasing cost of the increasing cost of living impacts on everyone it impacts on some more than others. And what we're not hearing, very much conversation around at all and and very little in terms of policy, are those people who are already living below or at the poverty line. And so I think if we if we see the cost of living becoming uh, a mainstream issue, then it kind of has a, an, an upward effect um, for all good reason of focusing on, you know, on people who, who are perhaps struggling, who are very anxious, and we need to be concerned about that, but diverting attention away from people who are really struggling. And, you know, I think if we, if, if we look at the, the pre-pandemic statistics around poverty, you know, 35% of single parent households, overwhelmingly women, were living in poverty. You know, about 18% of children live in single parent households, but over 35% of those live in, well, no, it's around 40% of those live in poverty. And so I think when we talk broadly about the cost of living without kind of unpacking that, it's likely to divert our attention away from the people who are really in the greatest need in, in our society. And it's easy for a slogan, isn't it? That we can, we're going to fo- focus in on the cost of living. Policy interventions maybe require nuanced economics, you know, a government that was prepared for an interest rate rise, that was thinking about particularly how to care for those who are at the precarious edge of society, as we can see the likelihood of economic uh, precarity into the future. We know that the, you know, all of the forecasting, and I'm not an economist, but all of the forecasting on economic recovery after COVID would suggest complexity, would suggest challenge, and would suggest adversity is likely to rise, particularly for those who are in a precarious position. We had an opportunity six months ago, 12 months ago to prepare for this. We still have an opportunity now, but it does require this translation of good quality policy in through our politics to achieve an end for our society. Astrid, I see you're at the microphone. Why don't we invite you to make a, uh, put your Thanks, proposition. Um, it's actually quite interesting that you guys were talking about diversity and inclusion and things like that because my question relates to the cost of living but not just that the NDIS has proved to be an absolute debacle in our political system I represent an organization called Journability News who try to raise these issues at press club to ask 
the politicians, what the hell are you doing for our disabled people? Where do you guys actually see this going? Because the Liberals have said that they're going to be fully funding the system, but those of us that know, that funding is actually just a restoration of the cuts that were made two years ago. And they've also changed the rule in that the NDIA CEO can now change people's plans without informing them. Hmm. Hmm. It's a good can, question. Can, can I yeah. maybe start yeah. with this? And I know Anna Greta's going to yeah. comment on this. I think Nick might as well. Um, Look, I think we've been on people who who listen to Policy Forum Pod regularly will know that Anna Greta and I kind of run run a, a hashtag and a conversation. Um, it's more than a slogan around valuing care, and I I think you know to me there's a, there's a fundamental principle that has been lost around the NDIS and around thinking about people with disability in our society. And I think for people with a disability, the word care can carry a lot of baggage. But I think, you know, we, we have lost the fundamental principle that at the heart of thinking about disability policy needs to be care for the human beings who need that support. Um, so I think that that's the first thing that I think we need to put back. Um, but I also just wanted to pick up on, on the politics and the policy of this. And I think back to that debate where the Prime Minister was asked by the mother of a of a boy living with autism, um, uh, uh, what his response was to the fact that his package had been cut, and this to me is one of the worst examples of politics taking over in this election. Now, I think the prime minister's response was inappropriate. However, the important part of that exchange was that that little boy suddenly was not receiving the support that he needed. It sounded as though that package may well have been cut without any consultation or without his parents knowing. And this speaks to a massive policy issue. And the fact that we focused on the politics for weeks is in some ways understandable because of the nature of the response, but is unforgivable because this is such an important policy issue. And the opportunity to talk it through was simply lost because the politics took over. Hmm. Can we play the ball, not the man? Can we actually, can we look at the long-term solutions? Can we find those structural changes? Um, and I think we've had at least 10 years and potentially longer where we've really struggled to translate policy into good practice in the Australian context. You know, all of those words, Sharon, that you've used to, used to describe the concerns that many of us will share around the NDIS, and I've looked after so many people and I've heard so many stories of struggles around NDIS funding. And it seemed to be working much more effectively when it first came out and it's become an increasing source of stress for families and for those who are trying to live their best life. And exactly resonant with the conversation we had just recently on aged care um, and the dignity that we would all want from an aged care experience. You know, what do we want out of life? As we age, we want to have dignity, we want to be cared for, we want to be able to have our best life available to us. And that's not just for us, but most of us want that for those around us. We want that as a society. I believe that Australians want to be able to care for each other. And I think our politics is failing us in that translation. Let's just take a quick break there and we'll be back in a moment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com hi i'm sharon bessel Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. It was a really interesting uh, discussion we were just having a moment ago about um, the NDIS. Uh, I mean, it strikes me that like, looking at the sort of the, 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 
macro politics of it. The NDIS is a net positive. It's an extraordinary reform uh, that came in. Um, it has bipartisan support. It's extremely expensive to run, um, and and it's it's a it's a good thing, of course, that this uh, this massive funding mechanism was eventually found and legislated and provides. Uh, that at least endeavours to provide the service that it does. I mean, it speaks to a couple of things, and I think it, it speaks to a problem we have in aged care as well, and in and in childcare. And that is that for too long we've been prepared to have certain people in society carry the costs of these sorts of things, sort of off balance sheet, as it were, just simply not paying them. Um, having carers whose lives are completely dominated by the care that they're giving, uh, have other people who are uh, who are the receivers of that care, um, their, their their opportunities circumvented because they you know because they have inadequate support and so forth, uh, and that's that's also true of aged care and it's also true in in different dimensions for childcare and so we're seeing some movement there, but the NDIS at the same time has proved to be this highly complex organisation. Its funding base is is is, is a constant source of political tension uh, and uh, and we see these terrible human stories emerging of people being summarily cut off or excluded after a period of time or required to jump through enormous numbers of hoops to prove that they are still eligible for um, you know for the the assistance that they get so um, you know somewhere in all that uh, I don't know anyone else want to make a comment Mark, I just wanted to pick up on that because across a whole range of policy issues, we see individual people who need support, as every single one of us does at some point in our lives. You know, Richard Titmus back in the 1950s talked about natural dependencies, you know, the, the fact that at some point in our lives, all of us need support. But across the policy areas that should be there to support people who are most in need, we see exactly what you're describing of people being required to prove themselves, to jump through hoops. But the other side of that is we've seen a lot of this delivery and administration outsourced. And so there are some sectors of our society that are actually doing very, very well from these approaches. And that privatisation and outsourcing means that often policies become very, very expensive or programs become very expensive. But we also shift what the focus is from people to profits. And so I think around social policy, we need some really deep thinking and conversation in this country about how we want delivery to take place and what we want to be the driver of that delivery. Let's move on from that to uh, another aspect of uh, an, uh, ANU poll. I was going to call it ANU poll, but that sounds like some sort of <laughs> uh, hemorrhoid cream. <laughs> um, th- that being the, uh, the very interesting uh, numbers that you get about um, primary support for the two mm-hmm. two sides. I think uh, just looking for my notes here, um, uh, for labor it's uh, for yeah for labor you've got primary support at about 34.3% and for the coalition at 31.2 now that's the coalition mind not just yep. the liberal party so that if you if you consider that um you know labor will have a significant and and you've got the greens at a high number i know yeah no, that's really interesting the greens yeah. uh, and this has certainly been picked up in other polls as yeah, well yeah the resolve yeah. poll earlier this week exactly. had it at 15% right yeah and and so greens in our survey is is kind of picked up support and and i think that uh yeah the, you kind of we've kind of talked about the election campaign so far and kind of the stumbles of labor but that hasn't translated into uh, any change in support for the coalition it's it's kind of moved to to the greens and to a lesser extent the independents and and you wouldn't you would expect those flows to go back into into labor. Yeah, well, that's been the 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 practice in the past. I'm sorry, my my microphone needs Viagra. I think it just <laughs> keeps um, keeps drooping. Um, the um, that's certainly been the case though in the past that we've yep. seen a very strong flow of preferences from the Greens to the Labor Party, but a fifteen percent uh, uh, share of the vote of the primary vote for the Greens 
in Resolve and I think you've got 16. Yeah, we said that was about 16%. Yeah. yeah. Now, that would actually predate presumably the Resolve survey. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, our survey was essentially went into the field just as the election campaign was yeah. being called and and so, yeah, it's pretty consistent. But and they're in the same ballpark, sure. right? Yes, so, exactly. And, and, yeah. and that's, that's a fair bit higher than the Greens normally mm. Score at elections, so it may it may be telling us something. We may we may look at this afterwards and think about this discussion and think, well, actually, the Greens had a good election because they were cutting through. Yeah, and and you can kind of see that in in the uh, in the priority areas which which we've identified, which would be uh, traditional grounds for for the Greens to do well. I mean, people are kept, uh, worried about climate change. Uh, um, you know, the Greens have been focused on on cost of living and and especially the lower part of the income distribution uh, for many elections and and care as well as you mentioned. And uh, so it's it's a um, the things which people are caring about at the moment, the policy challenges which we're facing at the moment are. Um, uh, helpful for the Greens in terms of of them uh, telling a, a, an interesting and a different story. Uh, whether that translates into votes and and in particular for a minor party, whether it translates into seats and representation is another thing. Uh, but at the very least, it, it kind of shows that there's a there's an appetite for uh, for um, for those for, for people who are arguing for for more action on climate change and and related things. Yeah, are you surprised by those numbers? Uh, yes. So uh, I certainly didn't expect. Uh, what we tend to see is that during an election campaign, the uh, it, interest in the it kind of the flirtation with the minor parties disappears, uh, and it kind yeah. of as the opposition, whoever that may be, and the and the the government take on more attention and and a greater focus. I mean, there's still the the leaders' debates are still framed around Albanese versus Morrison rather than than a, a breadth of of political parties and views. Uh, but that certainly hasn't been the case this time, and I think that's partly driven by the the issues, as I said, but also the independent candidates, and that should be um, uh, that'll be quite interesting to see what happens this uh, this election. And we and we saw last time that um, uh, kind of there was skepticism about how well the independents will do, and I think that's happened again, and the skepticism is still there. But uh, I think at the very least, it's it's changed the the focus uh, the debate a little bit. Nick, one of, one of the questions that many of the independents, particularly the the, the teal candidates, are running on is integrity. Yep. Is that something that you asked about in the survey? Yeah, we didn't actually ask about that specifically, but uh, one of the interesting things in our survey, so we, we asked about priorities borrowing questions from the US uh, and it's nice to have a low bar. Uh, and <laughs> certainly in Australia, uh, the the apparatus of government is not as salient as an issue as it is uh in uh at least in in the US and and I think there's a perhaps less salience around uh a, a um or let's focus on a, 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 a federal ICAC equivalent than amongst the general public than there might uh, be in, in, in Canberra, at least. I hate to use the word Canberra bubble, but <laughs> it is an issue which I think is, at least for our respondents, less uh, important than, than uh, as you said, kind of the, the issues which are more directly related to them. So whether it's a... Uh, and this is an area where there's real policy differences between the, uh, I guess, what you call the three major parties and and the independents as well. So it'd be interesting to see where that does translate into votes. What about trust? Because trust in government is the other issue that's been raised across the political spectrum, and you certainly see that in the freedom marches and the the, the, pe- the people who are responding to uh, Clive Palmer's advertising. That whether trust in government is something that has been lost. Do we know what the population yeah, so, thinks? Yeah, so we um, that's another kind of question which we've been tracking kind of during the the COVID period, and and across the world there was a a, a large increase in kind of confidence and trust in government uh, during COVID uh, and. And for some countries, that that kind of eroded pretty quickly. Um, uh, but in Australia, it held out for quite some time. Uh, but now, uh, essentially, confidence in the federal government is back to what it was during uh, the bushfires. Uh, and, <laughs> and was that a low point? Back in the it was a low point, It should have yes. been a low point. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a, a pretty low, low bar. Yeah. So okay, right. You can't so see through the, the smoke. Yeah. Right, no, yeah. no. Yeah. So I think um, it's... 
at least in the Australian context, there was a, a sense during the COVID period that, for the most part, you know, government uh, sometimes being dragged to that point uh, were were for the most part implementing policies which were you know pretty much uh, you know, keeping Australia the 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 levels and and outcomes in Australia were pretty good when you look at, across the world, and that dividend from that is gone, and you can see that in in kind of the um, the, the campaigning, like uh, you would you would think that a, a leader of a country which has done so well during COVID would be kind of front and center, but but I don't think that it's uh, that that Morrison sees it as a much of a vote wing in his record on on COVID, which is I think is interesting. Well, we did care. We cared quite quite actively mm. as a government for a good period of time. You know, we we fixed homelessness. We made sure everybody was secure in their we housing. We fixed homelessness because it actually was important to the people who were in homes. Mm. Yes, um, not really because it was important yeah. to the people who didn't have them. And you can argue that it is always it's always an issue that we fix homelessness and care for yeah. all elements of our society. But but we've managed to to ignore it again. And we fixed poverty. You know, we mm. fixed poverty. We took children out of poverty and we did that for six months and we gave people dignity and security in their life. Um, and so we should have been impressed with a government that could care for its people in such an extraordinary way. Well, and also we saw governments working together for the first time. I mean, really, for the first time in any, in any of our lifetimes, we yep. saw the Federation, notwithstanding, you know, some grandstanding around the edges and stuff, we, we essentially saw the levels of government, national cabinet, um, working together yep. in a in problem solving mode, and we they did were all, see a bit of bickering too. There, there was a bit of bickering, <laughs> and I, I don't think you can talk about the whole period in a in a, yeah. in, a, in, a in a sort of a single or universal make make generalizations. No. But through the worst of it in those early days 2020, of twenty twenty, yep. uh, I think you could say that the uh, level of cooperation between governments, and indeed the actions that were taken by state governments, mm. very decisive actions. The Commonwealth's most decisive action was closing the international border. But then, of course, there was a lot of bickering around, you know, whether you should go to the yep. footy and when you should wear masks and whether you should and all that. Yep. But, but broadly, in, in the major policy decisions, our government, our governing system yep. worked in ways but, that but it was I supposed think, to but rarely did. So, Mark, but I, I think we no, – so just, just on that, I, th I think that why, one of the reasons that – you know, we, we had uh, a very positive response in terms of trust and mm. how people saw the government during that period. But then when we came to the point of rolling back some of the coronavirus supplements um, and, and thinking about the pathway forward, we saw a complete failure on the part of the federal government particularly to, to draw the lessons from what had been done. Mm. So, yes, we can respond to homelessness and we can reduce it dramatically. Yes, we can respond to poverty and we can reduce it dramatically. But we're not going to take any of those lessons on board. We're actually going to take a policy decision to move back in a different direction. And so I think if there's anything that's going to perhaps erode trust, it's seeing that solutions are available and then seeing a policy decision that we're not going to take those lessons on board and we're, mm. not, we're not going to follow through into the future to think about what kind of country we want. And I think that's one of the great tragedies. Mm. There are many tragedies to come out of the pandemic, but one of them is that we didn't take that moment to really reflect on how we can think differently about policy solutions and how we could learn from what we'd done during those, those early months or that, that first period of, of 2020. And I think one of the other interesting things is is the exposure to the social security system, uh, which mm. many people would not have had for for years. Uh, and when you look mm. at both our survey data as well as the admin data, the the, the people who moved on to that system were drastically different to to those who've been on the system for for years. And I and I think that could have translated into a understanding of the the complexity of the social security system. It probably did, uh, and the the benefit of it during times of national crisis. Crisis, but that didn't seem to translate into kind of a the benefits of the social security system for times of individual crisis and and, mm. and that um, that that it's uh, that people's experience of that is, is kind of almost been forgotten and, and mm -hmm. I think that's not a failure of, of them necessarily it's a, it's kind of a failure of our government and 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 the political system to to not build on that and and kind of 
leverage that for for a, a policy response, which then is is more generous to to people who for whom that's normal. Uh, the um, kind of pre COVID mm. that that was kind of the experience of of having to deal with Centrelink, having to mm. to provide forms and all that stuff. Which which and, and of course what lots of people were having to provide at that point was considerably less sure. yes. than what people yeah, normally yeah, yeah, have to yeah. provide. But I, I absolutely agree, Nick. It could have been a time of bringing people together. But we, we in, instead we saw those divisions very quickly. But being but back. but could it really? I mean, I'm, this is the political realist in me talking about. You have a conservative government, you know, pro market government talks always about balancing budgets, about living within your means, all of those types of things. Very pro business, right? It finds itself in the hot seat at this moment. It suddenly, by by force of having no other choice pulls this hyper-Keynesian lever and starts borrowing billions and pumping it into the economy and taking all kinds of other, uh, you know, expanding the role of government dramatically. Yes, there are a number of um, long-standing policy solutions that are found to things like homelessness and, and, uh, and, and even just to a whole range of sort of social practices. But for that government to then say, uh, we're going to change the nature of the economy. We're going to change the nature of the relationship between Australians and their government. We're going to change at a fundamental level what it is that we, we conceive of as government. That's an almost impossible thing to imagine mm-hmm. a uh, you know a Liberal National Party government doing. I think it goes to the heart of what we're talking yeah. about today. Yeah, because it speaks to you know to the to, to the politics always trumping the possibility for deep policy conversation. Yep. And I think you're right, Mark, you know, the possibility of a Morrison-led coalition taking that kind of approach Well, we saw they did to Turnbull impossible. when he had – Turnbull yeah, had much, yes. much more modest ambitions than that and he was too moderate for them, too progressive for mm. them. But it's because we, we, we fall back into the, the, the political or the ideological positions you know, rather than thinking you – know, where would the policy take us here? Yeah, would political the binaries, make... really. Yeah, aren't they? that's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I think this is the frustration. I think this is the frustration that we're seeing manifest in the growing support for the independents, particularly the teal independents. So many of them speak in an articulate way about solutions that are not framed in a short-termism uh, framework but are actually giving a long-term intergenerational view in terms of policy solutions to difficult problems that many of us are not wanting to run away from but we're actually wanting to face uh, face head-on. And so I think there's a tremendous appetite in our politics, yeah, in, that means in our voters, to change the discourse, to move away from the binary politics well, and we to, hope to reframe. Yeah. We hope there is but we also so, notice that they say cost of living is their most, yeah. you know, so as, please fix that for Potentially as a cry for help. I'm interested in why COVID's not an issue and I, I, I don't know if it should be an issue during uh, the election campaign. I'm not really sure whether there's that much appetite to talk about it. We've been talking about it for two years where so many people are over it. But we do see this growing mortality from our COVID infection every day. We're seeing our numbers going up. We've got more people infected now than we did six months ago. Most of us have now had some exposure, if not been infected ourselves. 25% or so of the Canberra population certainly had COVID by now. Why isn't it an election issue? Why, how did we manage to put this into a, a basket of something that no longer interests us? Nick, did that come from your survey? Yeah, so I... I don't know the exact answer to that, and, yep. and I think that's a, quite a complex uh, kind of thing to to unpack. Uh, I think partly you're, it's that fatigue, yep. uh, and and having talked about and talked about COVID for for years, and I think there's a there's a, a desire to move on. I think it's it's also hard for the the two major parties to to kind of uh, um, create a distinction on. So I'd, I'd be uh, if Morrison ran on on kind of his response or, or the government's response to COVID, then kind of the vaccine rollout can kind of yep. it kind of opens. Bring it uh, on, I think. Labor yeah, would yeah. Say. Well, yes, but then yep. but then on the other hand, Labor it's hard for Labor also to 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 make too much of it because what what were they saying which was that different? Uh, so it's hard for them to run against kind of JobKeeper. They well, they thought of it. Yeah, and yeah. they they kind of also argue that well they do kind of make a point around the 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 expenditure on on JobKeeper which was far greater than it than it perhaps should have been, but that's kind of a it's like a JobKeeper versus a slightly different JobKeeper. That's a yeah, pretty hard yeah. thing to cut through on. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I think the 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 lack the 
the lack of difference between the coalition and Labor over the last couple of years on COVID has meant that it's a bit hard for it to be a, a big election issue. In the time that we've got left, can I? Um, that's that's an interesting point to sort of make this parallel, right? Uh, about the 2019 election, bearing in mind what we've been through since. But the lesson of the 2019 election for the Labor Party was clearly: don't try and govern the country from opposition. Don't put a large amount of policy into into the public sphere because you will get smashed about for it. It'll give Morrison, who's very good at sort of using this, uh, it'll give him material to use against you. So we see a Labor Party now that in policy terms, I mean, Nick, you made a very good point a second ago about, you know, there not being any policy difference. I mean, it's essentially the case with mm. with tax cuts, with uh, all kinds of expenditures, with, with, you know, most of the things that happened through the pandemic, but a whole range of things mm. that have happened since, even in the budget, even... Even the $250 for pensioners, the, the, the one-off increase to the low and middle income tax offset, all of these things Labor has just waved through because it doesn't want to mm. give um, the government, um, you know, doesn't want to give Morrison room to swing the bat effectively. So I, I suppose that I'm, I'm raising this to put to you all the question of, you know, are we at a situation now where politics is so febrile that the only policy that can be done, the only reforming and imaginative policy that can be done, has to be done by governments within government terms rather than, you know, thinking and trying to sell a, an imaginative image to an electorate ab initio. Yeah, I think there's, certain, to a certain extent, uh, but I think, the, I think one of the challenges with the 2019 election was not that people weren't supportive of each of the individual uh, uh, labor policy um, uh, proposals. And when we kind of looked at, um, as best we could, kind of capturing for support for each in, uh, individual kind of policy, then they almost all had majority support. But if you get kind of 70%… It was the aggregate, was Exactly. It? Yeah. So you get 70% support for this and then 70% support for that you add up those 30 percent uh and you you get to the point where people find something they don't like uh and and that's what they vote on uh so i think rather than i mean to me the lesson is not that you can't do big policy and you can't have uh big policy debates you can't have big policy debates around 30 issues uh and i think that's what the challenge is and i think that's what albanese has been trying to do whether it's been effective or not is is another thing but i think having a we'll soon know yeah, yeah. <laughs> did either of you want to comment on that because it's a pretty deep sort of question it, uh, it's a key question it and again I, I think that's what a lot of people are going to be voting for is the prospect of seeing policy change or seeing policy meaningful policy introduced and that is regardless of whether you're voting for an independent or the government the, Liber the liberal national coalition voting labor voting for a green part member of parliament people are voting because they do want to see policies either continued or or change and changing significantly if we if we create government where the focus of change is only during that first bit before you start mm. to get into election mode and they, we know that can be quite quickly afterwards, are we going to be able to solve problems like climate change, like intergenerational poverty, like our education system, like how our public service works? Like housing. Like, mm. like housing affordability. Uh, we really, we're, we're undermining ourselves, I think, if we put all of the focus into such a short period of time. And you can see it coming out in the conversations. ICAC which is separate to government because government can't solve this on its own. Putting out a, a climate change roundtable structure or, or taking away the, the, the decision-making from the hands of the politics because it's so important that we need to do that. Will we need to create that sort of structure for all of our major policy challenges? That would seem to be a pity in terms of, mm. I think that would, I'd regard that as a failure of our government. I think we need to be able to introduce back into our government system better nuance and capacity for seeing the intergenerational view. Sharon? I think, I mean, I think there is a, a, another issue here that we need to really think about, which is the nature and the ownership of media in Australia. And I think that does really impact on the extent to which policy debates can be had and the way they're presented. Um, and so I, I don't think... In response to your question, Mark, we can completely separate that out because I think it no. is so fundamentally important. And I think where we we perhaps have the potential, depending on what the next um, 
parliament looks like, is if we do see more independents coming through, there may be greater space to think about or to debate what the vision is for the country, what long-term we want the country to look like, and then what policies fall under that. Because I think one of the real challenges at the moment is it's the point that Nick made. We're, we're kind of debating 30 different policies in sound bites, mm. but not dealing substantively with any of them. Or, or the what, government links them, has been, what links them together. Or what links them together. Yeah, the exactly. sort of coherent narrative. Exactly. Yeah. The yeah. government's leading with bonus fever. You know, we'll just throw a short-term temporary piece of cash here or there. And, and, and within that, there's no space for, yeah, what is the connection? What is the vision? What is the coherence here? And where do we have scope for cross-party collaboration, you know, for the bipartisanship on the issues that really matter? But while we're kind of stuck in the, the toxic politics that we are at the moment, it's very hard for that to happen. One of the things about this, uh, this election, we've remarked about it here, everyone in this room would be well aware of it, would be the rise of these independents. I wonder if I could just, uh, this is going to be offensively unscientific that's to fine. you, Nick. But, um, Do you know the 47% uh, of statistics are made up on the spot? <laughs> oh, <well that's> <laughs> <laughs> I heard it was 80. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm after a show of hands as to uh, people who would like to see because let me just frame the question a bit better. There's a, there's a narrative running in Australia at the moment, particularly being run by the Coalition and its media backers that sort of starts from the proposition that independence ipso facto are bad, that they would lead to greater instability, chaos, as the PM said today, um, you know, and he's, he's sort of warning of this whole Labor Greens independence chaos thing. Um, but the, ind- the independents that I've seen operating in the parliament at the moment are among the very best legislators in place. So I'm just wondering, put up your hand if you think there should be more independence and less party dominance. Well, there we are. See, that's that's a pretty clear majority, I think. Nick, I, I think it was 99. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's interesting in itself, isn't it? That, But this is uh, perhaps not a very representative audience. We are in Canberra. <laughs> we are in ANU after all. I think everyone's looking for good discussion and debate. You know, I, I speak to people across a fairly broad spectrum in, in a consulting room environment and it's a crazy place to sort of get the political temperature. But it means I've spoken to people who will be voting One Nation and voting for their freedom in the future because they're concerned about what's been happening, um, whose, whose scientific understanding is sometimes different to mine and whose political understanding might be at a different end of the spectrum. Everybody wants to be heard. They want to be part participating in a discussion. We want to be able to bring together the different sides of the debate. Um, and so I, I think that's part of what we'll see out of the independence is the capacity for collaboration um, and bringing those those stories together. If we get those independents. If I mean, we get those independents. Yeah, I, I, I've we, been we saying. the Australia United Party or Palmer United Party, whatever it yep. is, and, and One Nation. And, you know, we have a whole range of yeah. political views being represented. No, that's true. Yeah. And, and But most of those are in Senate races. And what's interesting about yeah. these independents is they're in yeah. House of Reps exactly. races uh, and that could therefore be really important in terms of um, the makeup of the parliament, in terms of which side, uh, if there is a hung parliament as it's uh, described. And I've seen Bruce Guthrie, um, former editor, I think he was editor of The Age at one stage, made the point the other day that we shouldn't even be using this term hung parliament because mm-hmm. it, it's a pejorative mm. depiction yeah. of what would be a legitimate representation of electoral will. Um mm. And I agree with that. And I think uh, there's no reason to believe that in many other legislatures around the world, um, minority governments are quite common and negotiating. In fact, Alfred Deakin, I remember reading Judith Brett make this point in one of her excellent essays on Alfred Deakin. Uh, she, she made the point that Deakin actually preferred to be dealing uh, from a minority position because he accepted, this is in, 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 in his first prime ministership, I think, he accepted that this led to better quality legislative outcomes if you had to talk with people and reach compromises that it actually improved government policy on the ground. So uh, that's well, what's different. How about that, that if democracy <laughs> reflects the people? Yeah, and this is a father of the Liberal Party in a way. And yeah. I think uh, I think Howard would have much rather uh, to have had 
um, work choices are kind of rejected by having to negotiate with the Senate than uh, kind of what he what actually happened in two thousand and seven. So there's a there's a sense that well, exactly. He, he in two thousand and four he won the uh, lower house easily and mm. he won control of the Senate. Mm. That's right. And it's one of those be careful what you wish for exactly. moments because mm. they went too far mm. and uh, and they had that problem. And now, of course, we had Howard yesterday or a couple of days ago describing these independents as political groupies, uh, which I just thought was. Um, uh, utterly appalling, and I had a, a chap say to me this morning that if you grew up in the '60s, that meant something, you know, and, uh, and it isn't good. Um, it's certainly not a good way to talk about what are very, very serious, very highly credentialed candidates. But Mark, um, we can also rest assured that John Howard doesn't think there's a housing crisis. So. No, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and I think we should say, as a sort of a sobering coda on that, that the system is not set up for independents to yeah. make it in the lower house, and it is quite possible, I've, you've probably heard me say this before, but it's quite possible that they all do well or a good many of them will do quite well and yet none of them might get elected. That is a distinct possibility and uh, I, in a way I fear for what that will do to some people's levels of hope and optimism around mm. around this question. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap up there. Um, I usually don't like to wrap up with me and t- talking last mm. but... Uh, Unless no. anyone wants to make any final observations. We, I mean, uh, we have two weeks or so, style. don't we, until the election and anything can happen in that period of time. And so, yeah, I, I think yeah. Um, for those who are listening and who are voting in Australia, it's a good time to sit down and look at who your options might be. Yeah, that's a very good point. There's a couple of weeks to go in this uh, race yet and um, things can happen. And I think regardless of, of the outcome, aiming to keep the focus consistently on policy issues Mm. and the importance of policy debate and developing good policy is essential. You know, and so I think, you know, this is a conversation that needs to be continued beyond the election, regardless of who it is that that wins government. All right, on that note, I think we'll end. Thank you very much for being here tonight for this very special inaugural uh, joint episode of Policy Forum Pod and Democracy Sausage. It's been really great to have so many of you here and uh, and to have uh, been able to you know have this kind of discussion. There's there's a range of issues we haven't got to discuss, but we will be continuing to make these podcasts. Uh, we'll be back in our normal uh, cycle next week and the week after. Democracy Sausage, at least, will be doing another one of these. In the, so that's the final week of the campaign. We'll be doing another one of these um, live uh, podcasts. I'm not sure exactly of the venue yet, but um, we look forward to seeing as many of you as is possible coming back for that. And we'll, you know, endeavour to have uh, um, some also some more interesting guests uh, during that uh, discussion as well. So thanks so much, Anna Greta, Sharon and Nick, for your brilliant comments tonight. Thank you all for being here. And uh, that's it. Uh, We'll see you again another time. (laughs)